You are listening to The Airing Cupboard, the podcast where the extraordinary stories of ordinary people get an airing. Phew, that's a mouthful. A very big warm welcome back into The Airing Cupboard. This week, once again, I'm airing cupboarding on my own. And I also have to apologize for the very big voice. It is not a sign of having partying too hard. It is just a sign of a very hectic two weeks with overseas friends coming to visit us and other friends moving on to greener pastures and leaving us all behind. So today I'm going to tell you a story that I received and it comes all the way from Australia. By the way, thank you so much for all your stories that keep on coming. It's fantastic. And especially they come from all different parts of the world. It's extraordinary. Thank you so much. The story started on a cold and wet Monday afternoon in March 2008. She was working at the time in Hobart in Tasmania in Australia for a company that was involved in hydraulic energy. It wasn't unusual for her to be working away for a week at a time, as some of the dams were often in remote area of Tasmania. So that Monday, she was driving the three hours, the long road west of Hobart. The rain was intermittent and, she says, her wipers were mostly in constant motion and her work had booked her a room about 20 minutes from the dam that she was going to be working on that week. And as usual in this type of work, it was probably going to be a long and possibly lonely week. Quite a strange job, really, for the 28-year-old woman that she was at the time. But she says that her life at home wasn't particularly full either. So the road was straight and for the last hour now it had dived straight into the deep and mysterious ancient Tasmanian forest. Huge trees stood tall on either side of the road. It felt as if being in a green cathedral. Trees as far as the eye could see. Green, green, green and then the sound of her wipers on the window of her car. And then she saw the first sign. It said, Save Our Forest. And a little further, another slogan painted on a sheet that was hanging between two trees. So she slowed down a little and she remembered a story that she had read in the media about a protest organized in that corner of the state forest about people stopping the logging company and living in trees. So... When she saw a sign that invited her to stop for coffee stop and visit the camp, she decided that was just what she needed. So she parked her car, it all seemed pretty empty, and she walked towards what seemed to be the camp. But really, it was barely a few tarpaulin, but there was a campfire there and the sign had promised a warm coffee. So she carried on walking. The camp was very quiet and it almost seemed deserted. 
As she approached the campfire, she noticed there was a man sitting down on a stone and he was standing to the flames. She couldn't see him because he had his back to her. But he must have suddenly heard her and he turned his face towards her. It was an amazing face. A face like she had never seen before. A lot of hair everywhere. Beard, strong eyebrows, masses of dark brown hair that hadn't seen a hairdresser for months. He had a high forehead and a strong nose. But what she really saw was his eyes. Green. So green. And a very direct way to look at her. His gaze had no game, no pretense, like two green arrows. And for a long time after this, she thought that his eyes had absorbed the colors of the leaf, the ferns, the moss, living in this forest for so many months. But of course, it wasn't the case. So he got up and introduced himself. He offered her some coffee that was brewing in a billy on the fire and he asked her if she would be interested to see the camp and hear about the protesters' actions. So as she sat with him having coffee next to the fire, he explained to her they fight to stop the logging company cutting all the trees. He showed her right up there in the trees, tens and tens of feet away from the ground, some small platform into the canopies and some topoling hiding the protesters living on it. One protester per platform, you could barely see them. And he said that those trees were beautiful, extraordinary. He said that if nothing was done, they would be cut, sent to Asia, and they would come back in the form of toilet paper, expensive and trivial import. He told her that while they were living and sleeping on the platform in the height of the eucalyptus tree, some other protesters were doing all the legal work in Hobart and Sydney to get this part of the forest made into a conservation area. And then he spoke of the beauty of the forest and his voice lowered and his eyes became even greener. He spoke of the magic of the ecosystem and the magic of sleeping on the platform, alone, harnessed, of course, and looking at the rain arriving kilometers away, hitting high trees after high trees until it reached the one on which he was. He described it all so well that she felt as if she had been living on that platform herself, halfway between earth and skies. They sat there and spoke for a very long time. She really liked this man. She was drawn to him. He got up and he asked her if he could show her one more thing. With pink ribbons, the protesters had marked a walking track in the virgin ancient forest. The track followed the planned logging road. All the forest, the trees, the vegetation standing in the way of the pink ribbon track would be cut down, destroyed, made into shavings and pulp. She could have, of course, walked this track on her own, but he decided to come with her. 
The light rain had started again from the moment they started walking, and him, who had been so talkative, didn't say a word anymore. Just silence. The sound of the rain on the leaves, their steps in the boggy earth. They had to climb over old fallen trunks and pass through dense bushes. It was truly magical. She was leading the way and having to find the pink ribbons. And at one time, she turned back to look at him for reassurance, making sure that she hadn't strayed from the path. Then she turned back and her field of vision was slightly restricted by the hood of her mac. But she saw him, standing there, only a few feet away from her, tall like a tree and his arm along his body, utterly still in the light rain. He was looking right at her, right inside her, the green sea of his eyes and then a smile, a very white, bright, healthy smile, so soft, so tender. The moment was of pure beauty and something deep inside her changed, shifted. She felt it. It was almost physical. And yet, she had no idea that her life was starting at that very precise instant. So it goes without saying that the rest of the week she couldn't concentrate very much on the hydro technology of the dam. All she could think of was taking the long road back through the dense forest and see him again. Friday came and she found herself parking a truck at the camp. Seeing him again only confirmed what she had felt, and the way that he welcomed her assured her that the feeling was returned, mutual and ever so real. She didn't go back to Hobart that night, nor the night after. They spent hours speaking and learning about each other. He hadn't always been a tree protester. Sometime before, he was working in Sydney. He had a very pressured job in a big firm. He was working hard and playing hard, partying hard, making a huge amount of money, more than he could spend. Properties, cars, an expensive lifestyle. And he had started using drugs in a recreational manner. Then he, ever so slowly, started using during the day feeling that it focused him and helped him to perform. And before he knew it, he had fallen deep into addiction and his life went into a downward spiral so fast and he lost himself. In an ultimate try to save himself, he left Sydney and through the meanders of his reconstruction, he found himself at the forest camp in Tasmania and there, harnessed to those massive trees, sometimes battered by the wind, alone on his platform, ever so close to the skies. He had come to face his demons, and slowly they had left him. And that is where he was when she met him, in peace, but still fragile. And she told him about her life, and somehow a little empty life, 
and ever so naturally, they fell madly in love. She came back every weekend for the six weeks that followed. And then one morning at work in Hobart, she experienced morning sickness for the very first time. And a test confirmed it the next day. She was expecting a baby. Amazing joy at first, and then a panic. She had to tell him. She had to give him the choice. The conversation that they had that weekend when they saw each other again in the depth of the forest on the track, surrounded by the pink ribbons, was heartbreaking. He wasn't ready. He couldn't become a father. He was too fragile. He didn't feel reconstructed yet. He couldn't. It was the very first time that she noticed his green eyes could turn into the greyest, saddest of shade. It was the last time they saw each other. She went through a pregnancy on her own. There were no contact. When her son was born, she tried to pass on the news to the forest camp and she was told that he had left a few months before. No one knew where he had gone to. So her son grew into a bunny baby. But it was just her and him. And at night, when sleep didn't come, she was still swimming in the green sea of his eyes. It must have been around her son's first birthday that the first postcard arrived. He was in Chile. He wasn't giving her much news, but he was thinking of her. And then another one arrived from Argentina. And another one from Bolivia. And at the bottom, a phone number. And it said, no voice call, text message only, please. So she took her phone and she sent him a short message. He replied instantly. From that moment, they started communicating almost daily. By text message first, then they started speaking. And he asked about her son, their son. She told him all about him, how his brown eyes had speckles of green in the sunlight, about his first steps, his first words. He was hungry for the smallest detail about him and about her. She sent regular photographs over the internet and ever so slowly, ever so discreetly, a relationship grew and weaved itself in their lives. He told her that he had found peace. He was working for a charity in Bolivia and uh, after being hands-on for a while, he was now involved in the running of the business side of it and was doing very well indeed, making a success of it back to his old self and abilities. And then one day, the communication went dead. There was no news for a week. Then a message came, two words, trust me. Five weeks later, on a grim Sunday morning, a text message came in from an Australian number. It was him. It said, be there on such a date. At 12 o'clock, don't be late. And a number. 
It took her some time to realize it was a GPS coordinate. Her heart raced. On that day, she put her little boy in his car seat and drove to the very spot indicated. Of course, she had googled it. It wasn't very far out of Hobart. A car park. A lay-by, really. She parked her car at exactly twelve o'clock and waited. No one was there. It was raining slightly, and she was in her car, looking around her. And then she saw it. A pink ribbon. She put her son in her arms and started walking. Pink ribbons after pink ribbons. Her trail was laid in the vegetation around her. She didn't walk long. And she saw it. In a clearing, a small shack. Clapperboard it, a little shabby and unkept. A swing chair was slightly moving on the veranda. The front door was right open and he came out. He stopped for a moment and looked at them. He then started walking towards them, almost running, and a huge smile broke onto his face. And as he embraced them, he whispered, This little house is mine. I would like it to be ours, if you'll have me. And this is how she ends the story. Thankfully, I know a little more, and I'm allowed to tell you. They are living in Victoria, in Australia. They have another two children, and they are very happy together. So this story I find very touching, but for one extra reason. In 2008, we were living in Australia. And I took my daughter that was about five and my son that was about 18 months to Tasmania. And the three of us rented a little camper van and we did drive from Hobart all the way into the depth of the forest. I was somehow romantically hoping to find some trace of the Tasmanian tiger who obviously has disappeared for tens of years. And we saw a camp on the side of the road, save our forest. We stopped and we walked the pink ruben track. My daughter with a little yellow Wellington boot and my son in my arms, we walked that track. And I'm just wondering, has my path crossed with this man? Was he at the top of his platform when I was down the track? It might have been another track because I've researched it and maybe it wasn't the same place, but how it's drawn. Anyway, I hope you all have a very good two weeks until we meet again. Bye.